thinking about gift giving at this time of year, my mind could not but take me to John chapter 4. And I'd like for us to look at that passage today. And a, a wondrous passage it is, full of glorious truth. In the fourth chapter of John, I'm reading from verse 5 all the way through verse 30. Our text particularly will be centered upon, though drawn from the whole context, verses 5 through 10. John chapter 4, beginning at verse 5. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near, the, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. That's about noon. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. The woman saith unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. That's a good way to divert what the Lord had just said, wasn't it? Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah cometh, which is called Christ. When he is come, he will tell us all things. Jesus saith unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples, and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? The woman then left her water pot, and went her way into the city, and saith to the men, Come, see a man, 
which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came unto him. The Samaritan woman made her trip from her village walking down a hillside down into a valley in the heat of the day at a famous and venerated well to fetch water. When she reaches that place, there's a Jew there sitting on the well, tired, evidently looking into the well, but having nothing to draw the water out of the well. This day that this woman made her trip at the heat of the day to get water would be the greatest day of her life. The greatest day that she had ever had. The greatest day she would ever have in this life. If you were to set out this whole context from verses 5 through 30 to derive what's taught therein, there are many lessons, of course, that can be drawn, which we will not be considering all of these today, but you might want to, if you take notes, put down these things and think about them if you study the passage. And you can do that only with a dipper of faith, if you please. This is a rich passage. There are numerous things that we can learn here. To begin with, we learn that our Lord does not value men above women. We can learn that our Lord puts no difference between the worth of a man and the worth of a woman. That's no little thing historically, by the way. Then we can learn, importantly, how living water is acquired. The water you may drink and live forever. The water you may drink and never thirst for, have to thirst for again. Then how a heart or a life cannot be hidden from the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who says, I search the hearts and reigns in the book of Revelation. We learn in this passage the nature of true worship. We're to be worshipers, not entertainers. We're to be worshipers, not those who come to a particular solemn service in order to make us feel good. We're to be worshipers, the worshipers of the living and true God. Then we have the overflowing witness that could not help but come from this woman coming wondrously to know the Lord and his wonderful and matchless grace. So we'll be looking per day, today particularly, though, at uh, the first part of this incredible day and uh, yet draw, of course, upon the whole of the context. We want to begin, though, not with the woman, but with the one to whom she was speaking. We want to begin with the one that she met at that well unexpectedly and surprisingly on that divinely prearranged day. It was ordained by God from eternity what happened that day. And we'll get to her need, and the only way it could be met as we consider this passage. But first, we want to consider that which is so instructively blessed here in this passage, something revealed about the Lord Jesus Christ that's so essential for us to comprehend. And an old preacher titled it, 
the mystery of the dependent Christ. And I think you'll find that to be apt as we continue looking. The woman was not the only one that day who had a need. And that's what's amazing. He, who is the Alpha and the Omega, he who is the eternal Son of God, sent into this world and coming by divine incarnation, he whom John opens his gospel by declaring to be the Word who was with God and was God. He writes, the Word was made flesh. And so, <clears throat> this woman later, of course, in our, in our passage, when she speaks of the Messiah coming and will teach us all things, he is the Christ who says to her, I am he. But he had a need too. She needed him desperately. He had a need too. So he asked her, give me to drink. Give me to drink. So as we look at this passage, we can consider here two necessities, two necessities under which the Lord Jesus Christ carried out his earthly course. To begin with, he moved under a divine necessity. What happened was purposed of God, prearranged, ordained by him, even before the world began. And the Lord Jesus Christ moved and moved always upon the understanding of his Father's providential will. That's why you read in verse 4 uh, of... Uh, of, of chapter 4 here. He must needs go through Samaria. That divine must in scripture is a very important word. It's a must if you please of predestination. It's a must that God himself has ordained this. And the Lord Jesus Christ moved under that must. Completely submitted to the will of his father. He didn't take the longer route around Samaria. Well, the Jews generally did that. So that they would avoid going through Samaria. They would avoid the Samaritans. But the Lord Jesus goes right through Samaria. He doesn't go around it. He was not concerned about, nor would he be defiled by close proximity or contact with this hated half-breed people, the Samaritans. It's he who teaches us that defilement, real defilement, is not that which comes without us, not that which we touch, not what we put into our mouths to eat. Real defilement is in the heart. It manifests itself in what we do but it is in the heart and proceeds from there. As the Lord would tell the self-righteous Pharisees in Matthew 7, for from within, out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, murders, fornications, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile the man. Of course, we know that what a person does is determined by what a person is. We seek after what we really want and desire. What we really desire, we'll sacrifice to go after. And what one is determines the way they treat others. Or the way they are affected 
by others. Those who despised and hated the Samaritans did so because they thought themselves righteous and in favor with God while these Samaritans were defiled, cursed. That's always the fancy of self-righteousness. But he that truly was righteous bore no hatred to them. Went right through Samaria. Purposely. So, <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ moved under an impulse that he comprehended and fully understood in submission to the purpose of the Father. And we learn in him that when we move consciously under the impulse of a heart that is truly bent to do his will, we can rest in faith and in certainty that he will guide us by a special providence. He will guide. When we learn to trust and submit and believe him. So, uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, when his apostles would soon come and talk about food, getting some food, he would say to them in verse 34, My meat, that which satisfies me, my meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. But not only do we learn something here very important, that he moved under a divine necessity, accomplishing his Father's will, but he had an actual human necessity. He had a real human need. We read in verses 5 through 7. Then cometh he to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me drink, give me to drink. Why do you say that? Because he was actually thirsty. His body actually craved for a drink of water. When the scripture teaches us that he took our humanity, that he into his deity or coming as God incarnate, wondrously, he takes our human nature into union with his eternal deity. When he took our human nature into union with his eternal deity, did he take every aspect of our human nature? He did, excepting one that we have now, of course, and that being sin. He had every need, humanly speaking, that you and I have. Everything we stand in need of, humanly speaking, he also needed with dependence upon all that was necessary to support and sustain him, just like we do in our frail bodies. That's why we have a verse like Hebrews 2.14, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. That's why when we comprehend it is our great high priest who made the one eternal sacrifice to bring us to God, cleansing us from sin, and intercedes on our behalf, mediates for us between God the Father and us. And we comprehend that we can come to God through him, and that we can come to him. 
Hebrews 4.15 says, We have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. He came in all points. He knows everything we suffer. He knows all we're going through. He knows every trial we face. Experientially. Experientially. We would then go very wide of the mark and miss what, you, what is so actually richly revealed here if we think that the Lord Jesus Christ simply requested the water and only requested the water so he could draw the, water, the woman into a conversation. No, he needed the water. He was thirsty. He would cry from the cross in the extremity of thirst. I thirst. It was out of a real, keenly felt human need that the Lord Jesus asked for the water to drink. He knew what it was to hunger, to thirst, to be weary to exhaustion, to need sleep, to hurt, to grieve, to laugh, to cry, to feel the full range of human need. He's fully man. As well as fully God. And so, though John the Apostle sets forth the Lord Jesus as the unique Son of God, the Word who was from all eternity with God and was God, as John writes in the first chapter, the one thought that unlocks all the glorious meaning of this gospel is that the word was made flesh. Came in our human nature, actually taking that nature into union with his eternal deity, but not so that that deity would overrule his human nature. Every need we have, he had. And you might ask, well, we know he was God incarnate. He's deity. We learn this clearly and over and over in Scripture, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men, being found in the fashion of a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He could command the waves and the water. And they would lie still like a little lamb before him. The turbulent sea would immediately be quelled when he would say, Peace, be still. Why didn't he just put the water before him as deity? Because there is something very important here too. He willed to do the will of a father, his father, as a man. Not to overrule that humanity by independently exercising the powers of his Godhead. He didn't overrule that humanity by his deity. He was in our place. And in this, as wonderful as it certainly is, he even became dependent upon the kindness of others. You find those who met his needs. You find certain women who ministered to him. That is, they took care of what he had need of at times. He was dependent upon others. Isn't it amazing? We're talking about the Son of the living God. And yet he was dependent upon others and the kindness of others. 
an old Baptist preacher many, many years ago wrote, if we understand that the glory of God is the lustrous light of his self-revealing love, perhaps we shall understand how from that faint craving voice, give me to drink, the glory sounds forth more than in the thunders that rolled from Sinai's peaks. You want to see if that still works? Still on? But then we want to look here at something else very important for us to consider this morning. The woman, the Samaritan woman was surprised. I could say she was incredibly surprised. And the question she asked likely was somewhat scornful. And then the way the Lord answers in verses 7 through 10. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, Give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away unto the city to buy meat. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Necessary background information. Why was this Samaritan woman so surprised when she met the Lord there and he asked her for a drink of water. Well, apart from the reality that there was a centuries-old conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans, there are two things particularly that bear upon the passage here. You see, there was this rabbinic attitude toward talking to women. It was very, very strict. Rabbis didn't talk to women. It was strict, a rule among them. That's why probably when the disciples came, they were surprised, as in verse 27 of John chapter 4, we read, and upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man say, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? There's a sad commentary upon human societies that historically has been a tendency in some societies to degrade women. Still in societies in the world of this day. But this is something you never see in our Lord. He treated women as of the very same worth and the very same value as men. Then though God designed differing functions, we know for women in the church and in the home, God has established the positions that are to be held and the relationships between husband and wife and the authority that's involved with the husband and the subjection that's involved with the wife and in the church he chose men to lead and guide and minister in the assembly. Strictly, this is what God has taught, clearly, in his word. There are differing functions. It is purposed of God and is in his word. Yet the Lord Jesus Christ makes no difference, spiritually speaking, of worth between the woman and the man. You can read Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither bond nor free. 
there's neither male nor female. If you're all one in Christ Jesus, and if you be Christ, then you're Abraham's seed, and heirs according to the promise. No difference between the worth of the man and the worth of the woman. Differing functions? Yes. By the way, God created man and woman. Two genders. There are no other genders. Male and female created he them. God established that. It even becomes a type and picture of the church. Christ, the head. The church in loving subjection to him. Also, out of despite and hatred of the Samaritans, the uh, rabbinic tradition included, quote, that no Israelite eat of anything that is a Samaritan's, for it is as, as if he should eat swine's flesh. Of course, that was completely unclean to them. With this background, it should be fairly easy to feel the surprise and even scorn in the woman's question in verse 9. How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Of course, she's going to find out he knew everything about her. With this background, it should fully be understood, her question. But we know that she was not only a Samaritan woman. She was an immoral Samaritan woman, which would be brought out, of course, by the Lord himself. As in verse 18 of, of uh, John chapter 4. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. Well, some have thought, and it may very well be, that the reason she came to the well at noon in the heat of the day, not at the general time, that's not the general time people would come to draw water, is because she didn't want anybody else there. But the real thrust of the passage as evidently John explains was that though the Jews did not like to deal with the Samaritans, didn't want to deal with them, despised them, yet the Lord treated this prejudice as if it did not exist because in him it didn't. In him it didn't exist. And go through the New Testament and find out that God, in his wondrous grace, chose a vast multitude to save from all nations and kindreds and tribes and tongues. And that Gentiles who are called effectually and come to know the Lord Jesus Christ and are brought to a genuine repentance from sin and a trusting him only and Belonging to him and wanting him and seeking him and desiring him and wanting to know more and more of him. That God's purpose from eternity was to call a vast number of Gentiles, not just Jews. That kind of shocked Peter, you remember, to begin with. Even the apostles were enamored with this prejudice. But the Lord will make known that in salvation no one because of their ethnicity or because of their gender or because of their particular position in this world or their education that didn't have a thing to do with his call. That's why Peter in the house of Cornelius when God says take the gospel to him Cornelius the Gentile 
That's why Peter could say, I perceive. He perceived something incredible. God is no respecter of persons. He doesn't choose a Jew because he's a Jew. He doesn't limit what he does to the Jewish nation. We learn in the epistles clearly that the final purpose of God is this wondrous thing called the church, regenerate, made up of Jew and Gentile who become one in Christ with all distinction removed. And when the gospel went forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, unto the end of the earth, Oh, my. That same love with which God loved David, Abraham, the prophets, is the same love with which he loves you who are in him, who know him, who belong to him. The same grace that saved those saints in the Old Testament is the same grace that saves now from Jew and Gentile. Some of what we may learn from the way the Lord answered this surprised and somewhat defensive woman is in verse 10. In this glorious verse, Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. That is one tremendous verse, isn't it? That's one incredible verse. He did not enter upon a religious dispute. He didn't come and say, Well, I don't you know, straighten you out because you're a Samaritan. You got some false doctrines and some false things you're thinking about. Let's get those things straightened out. No. You know what he did? He pointed her to himself. He immediately points her to himself. Paul later learned well that true witness, when the gospel goes forth, is not to argue down false concepts, false doctrine, or false religion, at least not to begin with. He learned well that true witness is not simply to come and argue one position over another. It's to press, keep pressing, keep proclaiming, keep preaching one truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified under the Jews' a stumbling block and under the Greeks' foolishness. But under them which are saved, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. I determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. The Lord didn't come to argue her out of her Samaritan doctrines, he came to point her to himself. Salvation is not a convincing of one position over another. It's not a convincing of one system as superior to another. And winning some point, but only as God uses the means to convince some that they are sinners in need of salvation. They don't come to a system, they come to a person. They come to a Savior. They come to a wondrous Lord. You who are saved by God's grace, who are brought under the work of God's Holy Spirit in truth, and made to fear as a sinner the face of God, You didn't have any doctrinal positions. There's one thing you knew for sure. You were a sinner. A sinner, lost, defiled, 
in need of a Savior. And when you heard the gospel, it was the gospel that Christ came into this world to die in the place of sinners, to be raised from the dead, and to call to come to him. By God's grace, you came to Christ, the Savior. Then you begin learning, hopefully, the truth to become established. But it can be most deceptive, detrimental, a trap to try to win one to a certain position or system and they've never been saved by God's grace. They've never come to know the Lord of glory. They've never come to bow in subjection and faith to Him. That was the case with the Pharisees and scribes, you remember? One to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, you compass, see in land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, you make him twofold more, the child of hell, than yourselves. They won them to their position. That was it. What a solemn passage, verse, that is in Matthew 23, 15. Do you know the Lord did not deal with her as a Samaritan or as a woman? He dealt with her as a sinner. He dealt with her as a sinner. If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink, thou wouldest have asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. Then he makes known something in verses 16 through 18. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. My, what a surprise must have come to her. Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband. In that saidest thou truly. He knows everything about her. And what he made known about her was her immorality, her sinfulness. Yeah. She would hear of the seeking God who seeks true worshipers. Most everything that passes and calls worship today has nothing to do with biblical worship and truth. She would hear of the God who seeks true worshipers and that worship was spiritual, not confined to a certain place or to a certain people. Not on Mount Gerizim, not in Jerusalem, not confined to the temple, either one place. They that worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. There must be a real knowledge of Him. There must be a real submission to him. There must be a real praise and thanksgiving and honor and glory that's given to him. There must be a real adoring and magnifying of his name. Not religion in order to make someone feel good or think they are okay. But to know the true and living God. In truth. she would hear the wondrous truth that the water of life comes from him alone. The water of life comes only from him. And it's the absolute free gift of God. It cannot be merited. cannot be earned. If thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, Give me to drink. 
thou wouldest have asked of him and he would have given you living water the gift of God what an incredible thing the gift of God for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son and whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God gave the son of his love. That essentially is what's meant in the Greek text in Colossians 1.13. He's the son of God's love. The son of a love so deep, so wide, so strong that we could never begin to fathom the depths of it. God's best is holy, incredible, lovely, glorious son. The gift of God. That gift's never going to be topped. The gift of God. And though the wages of sin is death, that's what we've earned by sin. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What a wondrous gift. You and I, if you brought under this convicting work of the Holy Spirit, you will wither. You'll be made to see that you're vile, undone, poor, needy, desperately in need of a Savior. The wages of sin is death. God is absolutely right and sovereign and he, whatever he chooses to do with you and me. Yet the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. How blessed the meaning here. The word incarnate was there with her. The word proclaimed also under God's Holy Spirit. When it is heard and believed and received aright through the work of God's grace in one, it's because, as Paul could say in Romans 10, the word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. When God works in your heart, you will believe it. The word of God incarnate was near her. But the word of God that he proclaimed was heard, not simply outwardly, but inwardly. Something wonderful had taken place that day. Something glorious had taken place in that despised Samaritan woman that wouldn't take place in the majority of the Jews. The Son of God loved her, saved her, brought her to himself, delivered her from her false religion. Come, see a man that told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? How wondrous. And consider when that word is truly near and in one, and if they ask in faith, he will give living water. If they ask in faith, 
living water will be theirs. And suffice it to say here that this gift of living water means eternal life to which we must leave there for our message particularly this morning. But in verses 13 and 14 of John chapter 4, Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh this, of this water, this water at the well in Samaria, whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. He gives the water of life. The Spirit of God flows forth from him into those who are truly his and come to him. Well, you know, if the Lord is going to save someone, the only one kind of person he saves, who is that? He came into the world to save sinners. A sinner here? Is there a sinner among us? Then listen to the words of a songwriter. Come you sinners, poor and needy, God's free bounty glorify. True belief and true repentance, every grace, that brings you nigh. I will arise and go to Jesus. He will embrace me in his arms. In the arms of my dear Savior. Oh, there are 10,000 charms. He's the reason we gather here. He's the reason we come together. He's the reason we open this book and find that he's found there from Genesis to Revelation. <coughs> He's the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valley. He's the one that's more beautiful and glorious than 10,000. He's the one that grace has poured into his lips. He's the one that under God's providential grace and kindness, when one is brought to life spiritually, they hear him. Come unto me. Come unto me. All ye that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me. For I am meek and lowly in heart. And you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy. And my burden is light. May God bless the ministry of his holy word.